Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of New Books Network. Today, I'm with a very, very distinguished guest, um, Peter Adamson. Peter Adamson is a professor of philosophy at Ludwig Maximilian University of Munich. And today he's here to talk with us about his latest book, which was published just a few months ago, a couple of months ago, if I'm not mistaken, by Oxford University Press, Ibn Sina, A Very Short Introduction, or Avicenna, A Very Short Introduction. Peter, welcome to New Books Network. Thanks so much. I'm really happy to be here. It's customary to ask our customers to introduce yourself, but you are a very well-known person. You have a, your own podcast, so we'll kind of discard with formalities and we'll just start talking about the book. So you, you've written this very short introduction about Avicenna um, and uh, uh, I have a lot of questions. We'll try to cover as many as we can. But before talking about Avicenna, I'm keen to know a little bit more about the the, the, the cultural background of the period of the zeitgeist of the time that he was born in. And in your book, you talk about the translation movement. You talk about some uh, other philosophers such as Al-Kindi and Al-Farabi who have influenced Avicenna. So can you tell us, generally speaking, what was the cultural milieu like? Uh, what was the translation movement and also the influence of uh, philosophers such as Al-Kindi or Al-Farabi on Avicenna? Okay. Well, I should maybe start by saying that this was actually the second very short introduction that I published. So I also had done the very short introduction to philosophy in the Islamic world, which gives the historical overview of the entire tradition. So basically from the time of Al-Kindi in around the 9th century CE, all the way up to the 20th century, actually, although it focuses more on what you might call the medieval and late medieval, early modern periods. And and so in some sense, I could refer to the reader to that for the historical context. But then on the other hand, I didn't want to assume that people had read that or forced them to read it if they're just interested in Ibn Sina. So I do start the book with a kind of sketch of what had been happening up to his time. He died in 1037 CE. So he's like living from the 10th to the 11th century, right? So to understand the background, you need to know what's happened in the 9th and the 10th centuries, basically. And that means dealing with what you just mentioned, which is the translation movement, starting actually already in the late 8th century, but it really peaks in the 9th and 10th centuries. You have this massive effort to translate Greek philosophy and science into Arabic, mm-hmm. often by way of another Semitic language called Syriac. And... That actually involved a lot of Christian translators, and some of the philosophers who wrote in Arabic were also Christian. But the two big figures you mentioned, of Kindi and Farabi, were both Muslims. So people tend to think of the Islamic philosophical tradition as having these few, like, really major figures. And the sort of standard beginning of that chain of major figures would be Al-Kindi, Al-Farabi, Ibn Sina, or Avicenna, as he was called in Latin. So Al-Kindi, if you wanted to boil it down to one sentence, I mean, I've written a book about him, so it would be hard for me to do that, but I'll give it a shot. He basically was the first person to do philosophy self-consciously as an engagement with Greek thought, and he's drawing on the translations even as they're being made by translators he was working with. I think that was one sentence. And then Farabi is a member of a group of mostly Christian philosophers, but as I say, he was a Muslim in the 10th century in Baghdad. And they are writing commentaries on Aristotle in Arabic 
and also weaving various themes from other Greek thinkers like the Platonists into Aristotelianism, as well as thinking about how various religious concerns, both in Islam and Christianity, would relate to Aristotle. So if you sort of step back from all that and think about what's happened in philosophy in Arabic by the time we get to Ibn Sina, the overall picture would be that you have a, an attempt to absorb, interpret, and also to some extent transform Greek philosophy by showing that Greek philosophical ideas are compatible with Islam, or in fact with Christianity, in the case of the Christian Arabic philosophers, Arabic writing philosophers. Um, and you have quite a bit of uh, innovation going on there, but still it's pretty clear that to be a philosopher, so the Arabic word here is philosoph, so you can tell it comes from Greek, right? So philosophy is philosopher, a philosopher is a philosoph. These are people who are engaging with Greek philosophy, especially Aristotle, in addition to some other um, authors. They're also engaging with Greek science, like Ptolemy, Euclid, authors like that. And what Ibn Sina is going to do is to survey this terrain and think about both this tradition of falsafa and also philosophical issues that have arisen in Islamic theology. And he's going to kind of tear it all up, start from scratch by rethinking Aristotelian philosophy and Islamic theological philosophy in a new system. That's basically his project. And he also traveled quite a bit around Central Asia and Persia. Uh, what, how did it influence his philosophy or his writings? And I'm also keen to know about his patrons, if uh, we know who's, who his patrons were. Yeah, we do. There's a whole ser series of them. So he kind of moves around from one court to another. He originally is from modern day Afghanistan. So he says, as he says, the first sentence in his autobiography is, my father was a man of Balkh. So he's from a village near Balkh. Um, and then he travels around through what you might call greater Persia. So he, he's often claimed as uh, a Persian or ir even Iranian philosopher, by especially by Iranians. Um, and that's, you know, true, I guess, depending on what you want to call Iran or Persia. So he spoke Persian. Uh, Persian would have been his native language. And he travels around greater Persia, so in the areas that would nowadays be Central Asia and Iran. And he actually writes almost all of his works in Arabic, because that was, as it were, the lingua franca of the time, it's sort of like Latin mm -hmm. for uh, scholastic philosophy in Europe, except that, of course, no one in medieval Europe actually spoke Latin as a native language, whereas lots of people in the Islamic world spoke Arabic as their native language. But for Ibn Sina, um, Arabic would have been kind of a second language in addition to Persian. He did write one work in Persian called the Danish Name, mm -hmm. which is kind of an overview of his philosophy for one of his patrons, in fact. Um, and effectively, his career is a sequence of often quite um, troubled moves from one patron to another. So he moves from court to court. Um, we're not talking about caliphs here. We're talking about like kind of local potentates and warlords. And it, this was just a kind of standard feature, not only of his own time, but of medieval Islam generally, that intellectuals and doctors, scientists would often be attached to powerful political patrons. 
it's probably fair to say that these patrons were at least as interested in him for his medical expertise as for his philosophy. So he would have actually been attending on these patrons as a doctor. Um, but th there's a sort of sketch to his biography in the book, and it's quite a story. It, we know this because he wrote an autobiography that was finished by after his death by one of his students. And we know that he went through all manner of upheaval as his patrons sort of rose and fell in power. At one point, he winds up in prison, where, of course, being in Messina, he takes the time to write a big book. Um, and yeah, he, he had a really uh, difficult life story, but he always manages to kind of land on his feet until he dies at the end, of course. Uh, uh, let's talk about his philosophical contributions. Um, and, and I must say that I, like I told you, I guess at the beginning, I'm, I'm not a student of philosophy. So I come to philosophy as an enthusiast. And I really learned a lot about uh, Avicenna's philosophy through your book. And I'd also read your, your I think a book you mentioned is a summary of a history of philosophy, uh, philosophy with uh, philosophy in the Islamic world without, you know, am I right? You had this series of philosophy without a gap and have the yeah, uh, edition. Podcast, yeah. So I have the Islamic uh, version, Islamic philosophy there. Uh, so I, I, to, to, to me, the ideas were more or less easy to understand because I'm not a, from a background of philosophy. So let's talk about these philosophical uh, ideas of uh, Avicenna. So you, you talk about his contribution to the idea of logic that he borrowed from uh, Aristotle. Aristotle. Can you talk about that part of his philosophy, please? Sure. That's actually probably the most technical technical material that mm. I look at in the book, but it's really important to Ibn Sina. And by the way, maybe I should remind the listener here that we're kind of calling him both Ibn Sina and Abbas. Yeah. <laughs> and you'll see him called both in the literature. We decided to call this the very short introduction to Ibn Sina, mm. but it's got Avicenna in brackets. So people know who we're talking about. So you can call him whatever you want, but his real name was Ibn Sina. So he's very engaged in general with Aristotelian philosophy. So when I said before, well, he's kind of starting over, he's starting from scratch, he's devising a new system, although that's true, he's doing it very much kind of on the foundations of Aristotle. So he thinks of himself as being a very innovative, powerful thinker. He's self-consciously creative and original, but he also thinks that Aristotle is the most important philosopher prior to himself. And for that reason, he kind of models his philosophy on Aristotle's philosophy while also making big changes all over the place in a way that Farabi and Kindi were not certainly not as open about doing and didn't do as thoroughly, although they certainly have their own ideas that aren't just drawn from Aristotle. So this applies in logic. For example, his logical writings actually come in the same sequence as Aristotle's logical writings. So if if people who are listening to this know about Aristotle's logical corpus, the so-called organon, um, you've got like an introduction written by the late ancient philosopher Porphyry, and you've got the categories, you've got on interpretation, and so on. And Ibn Sina's logical writings, especially in his uh, kind of masterwork, which is a huge text covering all areas of philosophy, which is like long enough that it takes up a whole shelf of, of books, in the logical, so that's called the healing, or in Arabic, a shifa. The logical part of the shifa has the same sections as Aristotle's logic. So you can already see that he's thinking about Aristotle's logic while he's writing about logic. But he makes lots of changes. 
And um, maybe the biggest change that he makes is that he distinguishes various ways in which a proposition could be true. So, for example, he distinguishes um, between something being true in general or being true only at a time or being true under a certain assumption or being true necessarily or contingently. It's, and there's a whole list of these kind of modes that you can attach to a proposition. Now, that's certainly not something that was completely absent in Aristotle. So, for example, Aristotle already talks about what we call modal logic, like necessity and contingency. But what Ibn Sina does is he has a systematic, complete list of different modes that can attach to a proposition. And then he considers all the ways that these modulated propositions can combine. So in later commentators who are talking about Ibn Sina's logic, they come up with the possible numbers of combinations and it's way up into the many hundreds, right? And so you, then in theory, you would have to like write thousands of pages talking about the validity conditions of various combinations of various positive and negative propositions of all these different kinds. In practice, it doesn't get quite that ridiculous because they sort of focus on certain special specific issues, like where it's really interesting or useful for philosophical science or whatever. So part of what's going on in Messina's logic is just a massive expansion of the kind of technical situation of the theory of the syllogism. Something else that's happening, though, which I think is maybe easier to understand and access for people with a general interest in philosophy and not just logic, is how he thinks about the relationship between logic and metaphysics and epistemology. So um he distinguishes between different again different ways that a proposition could be true and he says well something sometimes a proposition is true because the predicate holds of the subject essentially so for example humans are essentially animals that just means that by the very nature of humans humans have to be animals in other cases the human might be for example bald so it would be true that baldness is predicated of human. That would be true of me, for example, because I'm bald. It wouldn't be true of you because you're not bald. And from that very contrast, we can see that that's not essential to humans, right? So you're not bald. I am bald. So that shows that humans could be bald or not, right? Again, that's an Aristotelian distinction. So what Avicenna does now is he starts thinking very deeply about the nature of essential predicates or essential properties and he, he distinguishes between different kinds of essential properties and he basically builds his whole philosophy around the way that essential properties belong to their subjects mm -hmm. um so just to give like a flavor of this one distinction he makes is between the essential predicates that belong to an essence because they're included in the definition so, for example, if human is uh, defined as rational animal, then animal is part of the definition of human, right? So that's one kind of essential predicate. Another kind of essential predicate would be, for example, able to laugh. Uh, so all humans are able to laugh because that follows from rationality, supposing, supposedly, according to the tradition. So that's another kind of essential predicate. And what Ibn Sina then does is to say, well, what we're really interested in is the, kind of the core definitional predicates 
that belong to each essence, and we can consider the essence in its own right and understand certain things to attach to an essence just in its own right, regardless of any kind of circumstances that are involved in the world. So that's one way to think about a certain thing and what's true of it. Another way to sort of think about the same thing, though, would be, well, okay, what's true of this thing, given the actual circumstances in the world, in which case we might say human is bald or whatever, right? Human is able mm. to laugh. Um, so he, he's able to move back and forth between considering things in their own right and in and of their very natures, as opposed to considering things the way they actually appear in the world as we encounter them. And that's like a very fundamental feature of Ibn Sina's philosophy that runs all the way through his philosophy, not just in logic, but even in metaphysics and other mm. uh, parts of his thought. Mm. Sorry, and when, when you mentioned philology, is that how you believe that we could achieve knowledge on the basis of these uh, theologic demonstrations? You mean like knowledge of God? Yeah. Or No, yeah. no not knowledge of, yeah, knowledge of God there, yeah. Yeah, so that would be a very important application of what I was just saying. Mm -hmm. So he, so just as we might be able to learn certain things about just the essence of humans, we can also learn certain things about God by just considering what would be essentially true of God. Mm -hmm. And here he makes like one of his big distinctive moves in his philosophical theology is to say that it's true of God and only of God that one of the things that's essential of him is that he exists. So like you or I don't need to exist essentially, like it's not part of my nature that I have to exist. In fact, before 1972, I didn't exist. Someday, sadly, I won't exist anymore, right? And even now that I do exist, I didn't have to exist by my own nature, right? The only reason I exist is because my parents came along and made me exist or something like that, right? There's some causal explanation to why I exist, but God is not like that. God has to exist by his very nature. And for that reason, Ibn Sina calls him the necessary existent wajib al-wajud, that that which by its very essence must exist or cannot fail to exist. And that's the kind of the key move in his philosophical theology is to say that existence belongs to God the way that, for example, being an animal belongs to human, right? So it's just part of what it is to be God that God has to exist. That's a really good example, actually, of how the logic is applied mm. in other parts of his philosophy. Uh, can, can we consider him to be an empiricist? Ah, okay. That's a big debate in the <laughs> literature. So there's a there's a paper by a really important, uh, really one of the leading scholars, if not the leading scholar of Indian thought, named Dimitri Gutas, a few years ago, in which Gutas argued explicitly that, that Sina is an empiricist. And there's good reason for Gutas to say that, because indeed Ibn believes that we get almost all of our knowledge from uh, sense experience in some sense. So, for example, and this is pretty much just standard Aristotelianism, if you're a biologist and you're trying to learn about giraffes, for example, then what you need to do is go look at some giraffes and through your experiences, through sense perception of giraffes, you're going to somehow realize in your mind the mind's capacity for understanding the nature of giraffes, okay? And if you don't encounter any giraffes through sense experience, you'll never do that, right? So, and, and it, it, it does think that almost all knowledge works like that. 
So he's got a very empiricist approach in his philosophy. He also thinks that in some ways, like the whole point of even having a body is that the body gives you access to the sensible world around you. And that enables you to actualize your soul's capacities for knowledge, which is the whole point of being alive in his opinion. So the reason why you even exist, the purpose of you as a human is to achieve knowledge. That's really mm -hmm. his idea. He's like very intellectual in his uh, understanding of the purpose of humankind. And you couldn't do any of that without sensation. So for that reason, you might say in a kind of like informal or or sort of vague sense that Ibn Zina is an empiricist because he thinks that almost all of our knowledge comes through empirical encounters with the world. But actually in the book, I say, well, although that's true, it's not strictly true to call him an empiricist because he does also recognize some kinds of knowledge that we get without, um, maybe not without sense experience, but they're not derived from sense experience. Mm -hmm. So, uh, for example, something like the whole is greater than the part or the principle of non-contradiction. These aren't things that you abstract from sense experience. The way that you abstract the essence of giraffe from sense experiences of giraffes, right? Um, another reason to deny that he's an empiricist is that he actually developed this thought experiment, which I suspect we might want to talk about yeah the yes. so-called flying, flying man man. thought experiment and in that thought exper experiment it's explicitly stated that a human could know something without ever having any sense experience at all which is about as close as you can get to straightforwardly denying empiricism as one can imagine um so i i infer from all that that if if what you mean by empiricist is someone who thinks that all human knowledge is derived directly from sense experience, then he's not an empiricist. Mm. But if what you mean is he puts a lot of emphasis on empirical science in his philosophy, then in that sense, he's an empiricist. Mm -hmm. Maybe to put it another way, he's not an empiricist in the sense in which we professional philosophers use it. Because mm. we use it to describe people like Hume and Locke and Berkeley mm. in the early modern period, who really did think that all, that we would just be blank, right? If not for sense experience, but he doesn't think that. For mm -hmm. sure, he doesn't think that. Uh, I think your response was a perfect segue to my next question, which was about the thought, uh, the, his, his thought experiment, Flying Man, and one of his most famous ones. So what was that experiment? And I'm also keen to know, maybe question. my question has two parts. What was the experiment and his different, and what did he try to achieve or prove through that experiment? And also his definition or his idea of uh, rational soul. Mm -hmm. Well, the two parts of your question are on the one hand easy and on the other part difficult. So the easy part is like, what is the thought experiment? And I guess scholars generally agree about the what the thought experiment is. What they don't agree about necessarily is what it's supposed to prove and especially mm -hmm. how it would prove what it's supposed to prove. So let's start with the easy part. So the thought experiment is that we're supposed to imagine a human being suddenly starting to exist. If you want, you can say God creates this person. That's what Encina says. But actually, you don't need God for the thought experiment to work. You can you just say a human suddenly starts to exist. Mm. And the human is in midair, like suspended in the air. Um, and they're 
limbs are splayed out. So they're not in contact with their own body and there's nothing to see. So Avicenna says his sight is veiled and there's no noise and there's no, there's nothing to smell. He's not tasting anything because there's nothing in his mouth and so on. So basically what you have here is a person in a, in a state of complete sensory deprivation. By the way, the reason why the person is in midair is so that they're not touching the ground, right? Because if they were touching the ground, they would feel the ground through their feet, right? So you have someone who's not having any sensory input of any kind at all. The reason it's important that the person was only just created is that they also have no memories of sensation. So like if I put you into midair and took away all your sense experience, then that would be a, a novel experience for you. But it wouldn't it wouldn't mean that you never had had any sense experience right because you would remember the sense experiences you'd had before so now ibn sina says okay well what would this person be able to know and in particular would he be able to know that he exists and his he says yes it's and he thinks i think i guess he thinks it's obvious that the person would know he exists so that's the easy part so you have this person complete sensory deprivation in midair right? No memories. And Ibn Sina says, this person would know that he exists. Now, the question is, what does that mean? <laughs> right? So what, what can we infer from that? And why? It's relatively uncontroversial to say that Ibn Sina thinks this shows something about the relationship between the rational soul and the body. His idea is that the flying man thought experiment is somehow showing us that the soul is distinct from the body or maybe even can exist independently of the body. And the reason he gives for this is that the flying man is aware of his own self or his soul, but he's not aware of his body. So these must be two different things, right? So if I'm aware of X and I'm unaware of Y, then X is not the same thing as Y, right? So that would be like a first stab at how the thought experiment is supposed to work. There is a bit of a problem, though, which is that if you put the argument that way, then it actually sounds invalid. So consider the following. Um, that This is a joke I use in the book as well. Consider Clark Kent and Superman, which, as it happens, also involves a flying man, right? So I'm aware of Clark Kent standing in front of me, but I'm not aware that Superman is standing in front of me because I don't know that Clark Kent and Superman are the same person, right? but they still are the same person, right? Similarly, maybe the flying man is aware of himself. He's not aware of his body, but it turns out that his self is his body. He just doesn't know that, right? And then there are various ways to try to get around that problem, um, like by saying that Ibn Sina didn't intend it to be a decisive argument. That would be one way to go. Um, a colleague of mine named Fedor Benovich and I, published an article a few years ago, which tries to understand the thought experiment in the line of the essentialism that we were talking about before. So on our reading, which I kind of sketch in the book, the idea is that the flying man thought experiment rules out that it's an essential feature of the soul, that it be a body or connected to a body, because the flying man is grasping the essence of his self through immediate self-awareness, but he's not grasping the body. So if he is, how can he grasp the essence of something that's essentially bodily if he doesn't grasp it as having a body, 
right? That's our way of reading it. But there's this is quite controversial, and there's a lot of different ways of understanding the argument. But that's basically how it goes: is that you have this thought experiment, and then it shows something about the soul being distinct from the body. Uh, what about his idea of celestial intellects, and and what was that, and how was he influenced by Aristotle in in, in conceptualizing that idea? This is a feature of his philosophy that a lot of people at first see as being quite weird. <laughs> And it, this, it's actually good to know that in some ways, this is it's almost like one of the less weird parts of his philosophy, if you think that weird means going off on your own away from Aristotle. So, I mean, it's kind of a long story, but hopefully I can make it relatively short. In Aristotle, there's the idea, and this is especially in the 12th book of Aristotle's Metaphysics, but it's also mentioned in the physics. There's this idea that the heavens are revolving in perfect circles eternally around the earth, right? So obviously in, in this pre-Copernican world, the earth is in the middle of the universe and all the stars and planets are moving around it in circles. And Aristotle, for other reasons, thinks that this has been going on eternally and will keep going on eternally. And then he poses the question, well, what is causing this motion? And then he has an argument that the motion must be caused by something that is in itself immaterial. So he thinks that each planetary body or the or the circle of the stars, the sphere that has the fixed stars in it, he thinks that all of these have, have immaterial movers which are explaining their motions. Actually, he thinks that you might even need multiple movers for a given sphere to explain why it moves in a complicated fashion because the planets are called planets because they so-called wander. Right, that's what the word planet means, is a wandering star. Anyway, there's all these celestial movers. And already in Farabi, in the Arabic tradition, you get the idea that actually there's only one intellect per celestial sphere. So for example, the sphere of Jupiter would just have one intellect, which is connected to that sphere in some way, and is somehow explaining its motion. And Ibn Sina takes that idea over. He thinks actually that each sphere has an, both an intellect and a soul. And it's using its intellect to kind of contemplate God. And it's using its soul to cause motion of the sphere. So actually, the heavens are a lot like us. They have souls that are more connected to their bodies. And then they have intellects or like rational souls that are in charge of engaging in contemplation or knowledge or science philosophy whatever you want to call it so um the picture then is you have like the highest intellect which is the first effect of god when he creates the universe and god creates the universe eternally because he agrees with aristotle that the universe is eternal and then there's a chain of intellects one intellect per celestial sphere that's the general picture. Um, the other, maybe the other thing that's worth saying about this is that the lowest uh, intellect, which is associated with the lowest sphere, i.e. the sphere that's the closest to the earth, that's the sphere of the moon. That intellect has additional responsibilities in Avicenna's system. It emanates forms into the matter of the earthly realm. So like when an animal, like a giraffe is born, the reason that happens is that this lowest intellect, which is called the active intellect, emanates the form of a giraffe into the matter. So actually, I said before that, that my parents are responsible for my existing. Actually, Ibn Sina would say, well, not exactly. What happens is that the parents, through a process which we certainly don't need to get 
too on this discussion. My parents prepared some matter in an appropriate way for me to receive the form, or for that matter to receive the form of human. And the active intellect kind of zaps the form of human into the matter. And that's where we get biological generation, according to Ibn Sina. He even thinks that you can have spontaneous generation because matter can just kind of be randomly prepared, like in rotting meat or something. And then the active intellect will give the form of the flies or worms into that matter. Um, and then in addition, he thinks that the active intellect is somehow involved in helping us come to know. So before we were talking about whether he's an empiricist, and there's a famous problem, which I talk about in the book a little bit, which is that on the one hand, he seems to think that we get our knowledge through this kind of sensory experience, like we were talking about before. But on the other hand, he thinks that somehow this active intellect is responsible for helping us come to know. He compares it to light following Aristotle. So one idea might be that we use the illumination provided by the active intellect to somehow abstract the natures of the things that we're encountering with our sense experience. But again, that's that's a controversy in the secondary literature, exactly how these sort of two sources of knowledge work in Ibn Sina as you have a sort of top-down source of knowledge, which is the active intellect, and a bottom-up source of knowledge, which is sense experience. And people disagree about how those two things interact and are related in his epistemology. Um, I have a bit of a different question here, and I think before we started recording, I told you that I'm from Iran myself, and in our when I was uh, in school, uh, secondary school, so we 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 read a little bit about Avicenna, but mainly his biography. We really didn't study anything about his philosophy or his 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 his, his contribution to to medicine, but. The, but he was mainly introduced to us as a man who has contributed a lot to to medicine, and we were told that even his books are even still today taught in Western schools, medical schools. So the question, but I've can I might be wrong, so I'm just asking. I've been from based on what I've read that he's more original in his philosophical thoughts rather than his medical writing, and I think he produces great work, kind of medicine if. That's how it's translated in English. So I'm curious to know if uh, his medical theories were original with, or they were mainly borrowed from uh, from people like uh, Galen. Mm -hmm. That's a great question. And you're certainly right that his philosophy is much more innovative than his medicine. That's not necessarily to say that his medicine is completely unoriginal. He does make moves within a broadly Galenic medical mm -hmm. system maybe we should just say briefly who galen is so galen is the mm -hmm. second century doctor who is the major figure of ancient medicine and is actually the ancient figure from whom we have the most surviving writing in greek which goes to show how important he was for the later tradition and galen was read as a major medical source right up through like the 17th 18th centuries in europe along with who this person they called Avicenna. So Ibn Sina was very influential as a doctor and maybe not so much as a practicing doctor, but as a writer on medicine and was translated into Latin, read for many generations as maybe the second most important authority behind Galen on medicine, maybe after Galen and Hippocrates, but he's like one of the big three. So you've got Galen, Hippocrates, Avicenna. These are the main figures for Renaissance 
writers on medicine, for example. And they refer to Avicenna all the time in this context. Now, so one might wonder, well, if he's not particularly original, or if he's only somewhat original, then why is he so important? I think there's a couple of reasons. One is simply that he wrote this work, the Kanun, which is indeed often translated as canon. So it just means rule mm. in which he very systematically and fairly concisely put together all of medical science in just one place, which you don't have in Galen. So what you have in Galen is this massive mountain of works on different topics. And and in the scene is that, well, like this is all great, but basically we need one book. So here's here it is. Bam. Here's the one book. And everyone said, thank goodness. So clear, so easy to use, perfectly well organized. And then it becomes like this major textbook, it's sort of also just the right amount of detail. So it's not just a kind of introduction to medicine that was existed as well. Um, it's comprehensive and detailed, but doesn't get like lost in the weeds. So you can actually use it. So it's a perfect um, kind of practical handbook of medicine in that respect. And he actually even outranks in influence in, in this respect, a somewhat earlier thinker named Abu Bakr al-Razi, who was also a doctor and philosopher, I actually have written about a, a book about him as well, um, who did write introductions to medicine and kind of encyclopedic works on medicine, but none of them had quite the same purchase on later readers as the Kanun did. So Ibn Sina is just very important in the history of medicine because he's the one who systematized medicine in a way that everyone could use. So that was one reason. Another reason is that he, maybe more than anyone else who's read widely in the medical literature, he has really thought about how to fit Aristotle together with Galen. So if you're a philosopher who's interested in medicine, you have a kind of problem, which is that Aristotle and Galen, first of all, it's not really clear what their systems have to do with each other, right? So for example, Galen talks about the humors of the body, right? Phlegm, black bile, yellow bile, and blood. Aristotle talks about the elements. What do these have to do with each other, right? Like, so the elements would be earth, air, fire, and water, right? Um, and certainly people have thought about that before, but there are other problems. For example, Aristotle says that the most important organ in the body is the heart and that your whole body is ruled from your heart. Galen says it's the brain and, and there are other problems as well. Aristotle didn't know about the nervous system. Galen did. There's all these kind of disparities and um, lack the places where there's a lack of agreement between Galen and Aristotle. And Messina makes a concerted effort to hold on to the authority of Aristotle while also bringing in all of the things that you get from Galenic medicine that seem to be advances over Aristotle. And so the result of that is a kind of harmonized system that you can use, even if you're an Aristotelian philosopher, to do Galenic medicine. So he's in, in some ways that is very innovative. In fact, both of these aspects are very innovative. So the innovation isn't coming at the level of actual medical theory or like, you know, which drugs to give for which diseases or how blood works or whatever, like things like that. But what's innovative is the way that he packages medical theory. And that was a hugely successful project. Uh, it, it, when we started the conversation, we talked about the influence of philosophers such as Alkini or Farabi on him. 
but I'm now keen to more know about his philosophical legacy in the Islamic world. Um, philosophers such as Al Ghazali, Sohrawardi, uh, Mullah Sadra. I know it's a terribly, terribly broad question. There are uh, there are lots of philosophers here, and you talk about them in your book. But maybe broadly tell us what his legacy was on later Islamic philosophers after him. Okay, yeah, that is a big question, but it's also a very important question. I always say that Ibn Sina is the most important philosopher in the medieval period. From, I mean, leaving China and India out, right? So that's a whole different story. But if you're thinking about the traditions that somehow go back to the Greek tradition, the most important medieval philosopher, in my view, is Ibn Sina because he's massively influential in Latin and he's massively influential in the Islamic world. That's not true of anyone else. Uh, in Latin, we've already talked about how his medical writings were massively received, but also his philosophy is hugely influential. So people like Thomas Aquinas, Duns Scotus, they're always talking about Avicenna, and Avicenna is still talked about in philosophical context through the Renaissance. So he's really he's one of the major philosophical sources for Latin scholasticism, along with Averroes or Ibn Rushd, who's this commentator who lived in medieval Spain in uh, when it was under Islam. But unlike Averroes, Avicenna or Ibn Sina is also massively influential in the eastern part of the Islamic world, which is really where most of the action is. So, so I mean, there was this kind of side story about what's happening over in Islamic Spain and in the Maghreb, the western part of the Islamic world. But most of the philosophical literature that we have from the centuries after Ibn Sina is coming from, you know, Iraq, Persia, Central Asia. And there, Ibn Sina is an absolutely titanic figure. In fact, I think that his impact on the tradition has to be compared to the impact of, for example, Kant in European philosophy. So you sort of have the situation before Kant in Europe, and then Kant comes along and everything after that changes, not because everybody's a Kantian, because that's not true, right? Many people don't like Kant. But even the ones who aren't Kantian have to somehow respond to Kant, or you can't just pretend he's not there. Um, so this is really the role that Ibn Sina plays in the Islamic world. In fact, he replaces Aristotle as the most important philosopher in the sense that when people talk about philosophy, even when they use the word falsafa, what they mean by it is no longer Greek philosophy that's been translated into Arabic, primarily Aristotle. They mean Ibn Sina's philosophy. And you have this long series of philosophers. Um, probably the most famous is Al-Ghazali, who's very critical of Ibn Sina. But he would be a good example. He wrote a work called The Incoherence of the Philosophers. Mm -hmm. And it's really striking that by philosophers, he doesn't mean Aristotle, he means Ibn Sina. That's who he's attacking. And then you have several centuries of people writing commentaries on Ibn Sina's works, defending him against the criticisms of Ghazali and others, trying to uh, even replace Ibn Sina as the main philosopher. Um, so, for example, you mentioned Suhravadi. He's a good example. Another good example would be Fakhraddin Razi, who's a very important philosopher from Persia. Maybe the, actually, I think he's probably the most clever philosopher in the post-Avicenan uh, centuries, like if you think about between uh, the death of Ibn Sina in 1037 and let's say Mullah Sadra in the Safavid period, 
I think probably the best philosopher, just in terms of how many great arguments and ideas you find, would probably be Fakhreddin Razi, who is actually not known at all in European philosophical circles. So it's a kind of worthwhile thing to know. Um, Fakhreddin, though, is like everyone else. He's responding to Ibn Sina. He's even writing commentaries on Ibn Sina. They're thinking all about. They're all thinking about Ibn Sina all the time, using his terminology. Uh, for example, they're always calling God wajib al-wujud, the necessary existence. They think about the flying man argument we talked about before. They think about his views on essence and logic that we talked about before. Actually, logic goes through a huge kind of um, development in the 12th, 13th, 14th centuries because they start digging into the implications of Messino's logic and thinking through how the system should work. So there's a lot of very technical work done on Encina's logic in that period. Um, and I mean, the upshot of it is basically what you've got is many centuries of philosophy that's being done within an Avicennan framework rather than an Aristotelian framework. So, I mean, it, I think even just even just saying that Encina is the most influential philosopher for the subsequent Islamic world doesn't even quite capture it. Would be more like, would you have to say something more like, subsequent philosophy in the Islamic world just is Avicennan philosophy, if Avicennan includes people criticizing Avicenna, but he just sets the the kind of framework for everything that happens. Um, before ending this conversation, um, I always ask this question, if there is any other project or books you're currently working on, Peter, you're a very, very prolific writer, so <laughs> I'm not surprised <laughs> if there is another book coming out soon. Yeah, actually, th this sort of follows on very well from what we we're just talking about, because I've been running a project together with numerous colleagues, uh, postdocs here in Munich for the last six years. This was funded by the DFG, the German Research Council, and it's called The Heirs of Avicenna, the reception of, um, or the, 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 it's called, let me say it again. It's called The Heirs of Avicenna, and it looks at the reception of Ibn Sina's philosophy in the Islamic East in the 12th and 13th centuries. So what we've done there is to produce several source books, which look at all the areas of Ibn Sina's philosophy and how they were taken up by these thinkers I was just mentioning before, like Fakhreddin al-Razi, Suhravadi, um, Ghazali. We don't go as far as Mullah Sadra, because Sadra is quite a bit later, only doing the 12th and 13th centuries. Mm -hmm. But we're, I think, going to be publishing something like two and a half thousand pages worth of English translations of text from this period and they're arranged thematically so you get a chapter on something like you know modal syllogistic or the internal senses or the distinction between essence and existence or proofs for god's existence or the flying man argument these mm -hmm. would all be examples of chapters and in each chapter we kind of introduce the philosophical issue and then there's a collection of relatively short passages like a paragraph long drawn from this philosophical literature in the 12th and 13th centuries. So um, we're hoping that that will have a big impact on the way people see philosophy in this period. So that's one research thing I'm involved in. Um, and there's some other research projects I'm involved in, but maybe the other thing worth mentioning is my podcast, which is the History of Philosophy podcast. So that covered philosophy in the Islamic world a long time ago. As you said, the book based on the mm -hmm. podcast is already out for that. But at the moment, I'm in the midst of covering philosophy in the Reformation. Mm. And, 
And so I've just been working on Shakespeare, had several episodes on Shakespeare and philosophy, which was fun. And I'm wrapping up a long series with a co-author named Chika Jeffers. We're wrapping up a long series on Africana philosophy, which has covered Africana philosophy from ancient Egypt right up to the end of the 20th century, which is what we're doing now. And early in 2024, I'll be moving on to classical Chinese philosophy with another co-author named Karen Lai. So lots going on in the podcast yeah. as well. I won't be surprised if if uh, this is a podcast you're doing on African philosophy and, and Chinese philosophy be turning into books as well. Because I think I yeah, told you that. Well, yeah, great. Yeah, because yeah. I have uh, you have a series of books in history of philosophy without gaps, which is based on your podcast, as I mentioned. I only have the one on Islamic philosophy. I'm going to save more money to get the rest of them as well soon. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, actually, the, the first, the Africana series will come out in two volumes, and the first one has mm. already been sent off to the publisher. So I hope that'll be out in 2024, if all goes oh, well. Oh, great. Which publisher, if I may ask? That's Oxford University Press. Oh, great. Just like yeah. a very short introduction. Mm, mm. Yeah. Well, hope to be able to talk to you about those books soon uh, on our podcast. Peter, thank you very, very much for your uh, time. Really enjoyed this conversation. Me too. Thanks so much.